You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Our text for this morning is Psalm chapter 5, and our title is A Prayer for Troubled Times. A Prayer for Troubled Times. Now, prayer is the highest and most intimate expression of our relationship with God. It is the way that we commune with him and come close to him. And so it's also no surprise, given the the height of that opportunity that we have, that prayer we find is one of the most difficult things for us to do. Yes, the flesh wars against the spirit, and that is especially true when it comes to prayer. I hope in this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, with all the extra time many of you have, as well as the uh, many more uh, needs in the world, both here at home and abroad, that you have been praying even more. There's been certainly more opportunity to pray with the extra time on many of our hands and extra need of prayer. So I hope that we've been praying. And, and yet the flesh wars against our spirit. And we find ourselves praying way less than we should. I doubt there's a single one of us in this congregation, myself included, who says that we pray enough. And so while it is our greatest privilege this side of of heaven, it's no surprise that it's also a place of great spiritual warfare. And so we come to Psalm chapter 5 today, and we're going to see a psalm, a prayer, a prayer psalm. It's about prayer. We'll learn things from it on how to pray, but we'll also see David's prayer. Now, you're not the only person that finds it hard to pray. I know that. As I just mentioned, every, everyone at times struggles with this. I'm with you. I'm not preaching this psalm as somebody who's got his prayer life figured out. I, I need this sermon and this psalm as much as every one of us. I'm, I'm a broken man speaking to broken people. So don't think as I give application today that I'm, I've got it all figured out or that I'm even been historically doing all the application that's going to come out of this text. I'm, I'm preaching to myself. I am learning for myself as, as I've studied and as we go today. So we're going to have two goals as we study this psalm, two goals as we go. We're going to learn three virtues about how to pray, three virtues about how to pray. And we're also going to learn the doctrine the psalm presents as we look into David's prayer. We will see doctrine in this psalm. These will be intertwined, the doctrine and the virtues. But for simplicity's sake, we're going to use the three virtues as our sermon outline, the three virtues of our sermon outline. And as we look into this text today, we are going to find that we need to both live and pray by faith in a sovereign, righteous, and good God. We need to both live and pray by faith in a sovereign, righteous, and good God. Now, it's a simple message. What I've communicated to you just now as the main point of this text is is not a a brand new thing. In fact, if you remove those adjectives I put on the front of God, I basically just said we are to live and pray by faith in God. I mean, it's as simple as that, but our, our hearts need reminders, and this psalm is going to give it to us. So go ahead and look at your text. I'm going to read through all 12 verses of, of Psalm 5, say a prayer for asking God's help to exposit this, and then we will dig in. So let us read Psalm 5, 1 through 12. God's word says, To the choir master, For the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. 
The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Lord God, as we dig into this psalm, touch our hearts. Teach us to pray, O Father. May we, like David, be men, men and women after your own heart. Instruct us, Lord, now today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we move through this psalm as a prayer for troubled times, we'll see three virtues of God-honoring prayer. We're just going to jump right into the first one. Three virtues of God-honoring prayer. The first virtue, if you see, follow along in the bulletin outline, petition the king. Petition the king, verses 1 to 3. Now, the psalm does start in the heading before verse 1, but it does not provide us much information. It gives us the author, and it tells us it's for the choir master. It's, it's written uh, to be sung. And, and again, this, this is not a psalm as we go through it. David's not giving personal details. This is not a personal prayer that he is limited to himself and God. This is actually written for Israel. This is written for uh, the nation to be a prayer for the nation. And indeed, it's been saved and recorded and sung many times throughout the last 3,000 years since it was penned. This is, a, this is a prayer for the church. It's an ongoing prayer that we can pray. There was a, obviously a scenario prompting this prayer. There's a talk about enemies and, and people against David slandering him, lying about him. But we don't know the timing of it. We don't know when it is. It could have been, it potentially was when Absalom came and tried to take over the throne and cast him out. Psalm 3 is about that. In fact, one commentator connects Psalm 4 and 5 with chapter with 3 and thinks this is about Absalom. But we don't know that for a fact. It could be at any point in his life when he was in distress. But he prays. He's, he's in a troubled season. A time of distress. And so he lifts up this prayer. I love how in verse 2, as he enters into this prayer of holy boldness, he addresses his prayer to the king, to my king and my God. He petitions the king. I just love that. There's so much humility in this use of king. You see, David, almost certainly when he pens this, is king. He is probably already king of Israel. And so to him, to submit and recognize that he is underneath the authority of God is a big deal. Most kings, they get to the top, they have nobody above them, and they love it that way, and they rule that way. But David understands that the monarchy is under the theocracy. His kingdom is under God's kingdom, and he submits to his king. He humbly comes before his king, and he recognizes God is sovereign. David's not sovereign. God is sovereign. And he says that just by the title he gives to his God in verse 2. Now, he, he comes, he opens up in verse 1 with a threefold injunction. Give ear, he says. Consider and heed. These are all imperatives in Hebrew. They are all, he's commanding God. 
He's basically saying, God, listen to me. Stop whatever you're doing, God, and hear me. There's a, a holy boldness in that. It's, it's daring. He, 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 he uses give ear. That's the picture of cup, cup your ear with your hand, God. Listen to me. Take heed of what I'm saying. He's asking God to consider his words. He's asking God to get mentally involved in what he's saying. And then thirdly, the most daring of all of them, he says, heed, or in modern vernacular, pay attention. It's the same word you would use to scold a child, ignoring your instruction. Pay attention to me, God. Give me your ear. And David calls his prayer uh, three things. He calls it words. He calls it groanings and cries. Words is just a, a straightforward. It's, it's what's spoken with the lips in a normal conversation. I'm talking to you in words right now. The word groanings is unique. Some translations have called it murmurings, others uh, utterances. The idea behind it is the, the silent prayer of the heart. It, it's you, you don't even know what to say. You, you, you're, you're just whispering or you're murmuring or you're, you're not even saying anything at all. I picture Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. She's before God praying and Eli sees her and thinks she's drunk and she's just murmuring. We can think of it from Romans 8.26 as those groanings which cannot be uttered where the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't even know what to say. We want God to consider these things. And David cries out, God, consider me in my groaning, in my murmuring. And thirdly, he says, cry for help. This is the exact opposite of groaning. This is a, help, I need you. It's a, it's a cry a desperate, of desperation. So David comes to God with all three of these things. He opens his prayer with a holy boldness to petition his king and his God. You see, he's not, he's not gone after the other gods. He's not gone after Baal or Dagon or Ra, as the end of verse 2 expresses, but to the one true God. For to you, God, the one true God, do I pray. That's how David comes. Asking God, petitioning God. And friend, I ask you, how is your prayer life these days? Are you praying with a holy boldness to your God, your sovereign God, and your King? Are you doing this? We need a fervency when we frequent the throne room of God. What a bummer to bore God with faithless requests and rote mechanical prayers. He wants fervency of heart and spirit. Charles Spurgeon comments, that prayer without fervency is like hunting with a dead dog. <laughs> what are you doing? You're not going to get anything. Even Christ, though, though God himself, when he came to earth, he prayed and prayed to God with great devotion and earnest. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. That's our Savior. He came like this. He came before the Lord with loud cries, with tears, and he was heard because of his reverence. He came in faith. He came to the Lord. Now in verse 3, David adds for us something. Look at verse 3. He says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. He reminds God of his devotion and he implores God to answer him. This verse is just bursting with application for us. First, he says, in the morning you hear my voice. Some translations render this in a future tense. In the morning, you will hear my voice, almost as if David is going to pray one time starting tomorrow morning. But I think the ESV just nails it here. It's, it, in the Hebrew, it's in the imperfect, which pictures an ongoing 
in ongoing action, something that's not stopped. And so the ESV translates it well, just very simple, in the morning you hear my voice. Now as a student at the Master's College, my Old Testament professor, Will Varner, started every class, every single class of Old Testament Survey 1 and 2 by saying, Boker Tov, Talmudim, to which we were expected to respond every single day, Boker Tov, More. That's in Hebrew, and that means, good morning, students. Good morning, teacher. Well, every single morning for 30 straight weeks, five days a week in Old Testament Survey 1 and 2. And that's the idea here. Every morning, Lord, you hear my voice. Boker Tov, Yahweh, we could say. Good morning, God. The Hebrew of verse 3 actually reads, Yahweh, Boker Tishma Koli. Yahweh, every morning you hear my voice. It was John Bunyan who said, He who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. And so what we have here, by way of application, is a great picture for us. Yes, we are to be praying without ceasing, absolutely. But we also need to have a habit of prayer, morning by morning. This is David's habit, to come before the Lord at the start of the day. Why not get started on the right foot every single day? That's David's habit. Is it yours too? I would encourage you, start praying every single morning. Now, the latter half of verse 3 is also loaded. Every morning, David does two things. He says, I arrange my prayers to you or my sacrifices, as ESV has it. And he says, I, and I eagerly watch. I watch. I watch with eager expectation is what that word means. Together, these express preparation and expectation. You see, the Hebrew word for prepare is often used uh, for preparing a large fire for a sacrifice, putting things in order. Abraham, when he came up Mount Moriah, laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac on top. Genesis 22, 9, it's the same word. The connection with this word and preparing a sacrifice is why the ESV says, I prepare a sacrifice for you. But it's, it's very unlikely that's what David's getting at here. The word sacrifice is not there. It's been added. Rather, what, what likely he's saying with this word is that he's making preparations to offer a sacrifice, to offer a, a prayer, rather. Just like making preparations to offer a sacrifice, he's making preparations before he bows before God in prayer. He's preparing to pray. Every day, it seems, David spent at least a few moments before praying, before entering God's presence in preparation. He was getting ready. Now, in American culture, We've come to think spontaneity in prayer is the only way to go. Many of us even shun pre-written prayers or even, or, as unspiritual, and that we're not even allowed to organize our thoughts. We just need to come before the Lord, and the Spirit will move, and we'll just gush out in prayer. That's not David's stance on it. David prepared his prayers, and that's a good thing for us to do as well. That is a good application. You know, the prayer I prayed earlier at the beginning of the service, I had a few bullet points. I wanted God to, I wanted to direct my prayer as I went through it. When you pray in the mornings, you could use a prayer journal where you, where you look at things in the past and you think through the week and even look at the, the weekly prayer email from the church and jot some bolts down on things you want to make sure you pray for and cover. Elements about God that are particularly, uh, have hit your heart that week that you can praise back to Him in adoration in your prayer. You can jot them down. Prepare before you come to Him. You can use a journal, like I said. You can write bullet points on a piece of paper or a three-by-five card. You can even use a prayer app. As technologically weird as that sounds, I actually revolted at the thought of that at first, but I've been using a prayer app for about three years now, and I love it. It takes constant updating here and there, but it's 
It's very simple and very helpful. You can use a prayer app. Mine's called Prayer Mate. In case anybody wants to look it up, Prayer Mate. It's uh, very useful in preparation. But not only did David prepare, and not only should we prepare, but David was also expectant. He expected God to act. Like an archer shoots an arrow and watches where it goes, we are to look for the results of our prayers. The Hebrew word that closes off this, this verse is, um, the Hebrew word that closes off this verse, in, in the ESV just says watch, but there's an eagerness to it. There's an expectation involved. We are looking for God to, get, to, to bring us something. Puritan Thomas Goodwin, in his pithy but powerful little book called The Return of Prayers, writes, I'm going to quote him at length, so follow along with me, or listen along with me, rather. He writes, Many of the best believers who are diligent in prayer are found failing and deficient. They see no gain because they are careless and unobservant of their returns, that is, God's answers. For some, it may be through ignorance of the duty to watch for answers. Most are, are commonly complaining that their adventures miscarry and that little or nothing comes of all their prayers. They are negligent in keeping their book of accounts, which has caused them to lose that chief portion of comfort which God has allotted us to live upon, namely the revenues of our prayers. By doing so, God is not only robbed of his glory, but wronged by standing still a debtor in their accounts to many prayers, the return of which he has been creditor long ago. End quote. What Goodwin is saying is that we need to look and see God answer our prayers. We need to pray specifically, and then we need to look for God to answer those and wait for him and praise him and thank him when he does. Many times we make prayers and then we don't look for the answer. God answers it and we miss it. And we think that God still hasn't answered the prayer, so he's still a debtor to us. And yet he's already returned that prayer to us and answered. We just haven't looked for it. We haven't been expectantly waiting it. Later on, Goodwin writes, So prayer is not done when we finish speaking. It continues as we wait on the Lord for its accomplishments. That's so good. Oh, that we would have the heart of David that prays with preparation and waits with expectation. Let us not be like the ostrich that leaves her eggs and forgets all about them. Let us pray and remember to look for what we have prayed. Let's have a holy boldness, a thoughtful preparation, and a patient expectation as we petition our sovereign king in prayer day after day. George Mueller is one of the greatest human examples of a David-like prayer. You're probably familiar with the story of how he started many, well, God through him started many orphan houses and they were able to rescue and, and care for hundreds, even thousands of orphans over the years, tens of thousands of orphans. And it was all done through prayer. Reading his, his journal, his journals and, and the, the book, his biography by A.T. Pearson, is just fascinating accounts of God answering prayer after prayer after prayer. And one that has really struck me was uh, two of Mueller's best friends. Best friends from his youth, when he was unconverted, were, were unsaved. And he prayed for them for 60 years. And they still were unconverted. After 60 years, well, you would have given up. I would have given up. Not Mueller. He knew that he could rely on the Lord. He was going to pray for these men until he passed away. And that's what he did. He prayed for them. One of those friends was saved just a year before Mueller passed away. The other one? saved under Mueller's very last sermon that he ever preached. God answered those prayers 60 years in the making. Amazing story, amazing faithfulness of that man. 
God is sovereign over everything, friends. We have every reason to pray with expectation, looking diligently for him to answer. This is an incredible opening to David's prayer that we've seen here, that we should petition our king. The next sequential prayer virtue, even before bringing our needs to him, is that we are to proclaim his character. Virtue number two, proclaim his character. In this section, verses four to seven, the psalmist has no requests. Rather, he simply prays back to God what he knows to be true about God. He looks at who God is in all his greatness, and he responds and returns that back to God in prayer. He proclaims his character back at him. Now, what's the point of doing this? Why proclaim the character of God back at him? God already knows who he is. And obviously, if we're praying it, we already know who he is. So why do we do this? Well, there's three reasons. The first one's a minor reason. The next two are major. The minor reason is that it instructs those hearing our prayers about who our God is. It instructs those hearing our prayers about who our God is. For the unbeliever who might be listening in, it teaches them about God, and it might even transform them. They might come to see this God as eminently glorious and wonderful and worthy of their devotion too. It teaches and transforms. But for the believer, as the believer listens in, as you pray about back to God, this character, it reminds, reinforces, and reassures the believer about who God is and what he can do and what he has done. One of my favorite ever uh, prayer groups that I've been a part of was with the seminary men at 6.30 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays during seminary. You got, we had about 20 guys in a room, um, and the first, we'd pray for about 45, 50 minutes. In the first 30 minutes, we just sat there and praised the Lord. We proclaimed his character for the first 30 minutes, and it was, it was mind-blowing. Hearing all these other men and participating in that as we prayed back to God who he was. And then we'd split for about 20 minutes in smaller groups and, and, uh, and pray for our, our needs and what we needed. So that's the first minor reason there. So two major reasons. For the second, this reveals your heart to God in that you are intentionally praying in line with character. It reveals heart to God. You want his will to be done, not your own. So you explain to God as you pray that you know his character and want him to act according to it. God, your will be done, not mine. This is your will. This is your character. Act accordingly, please. That's basically what you're doing. And the third major reason is that we are compelling God to act on our behalf in accordance with who he is. I'll say that again. Praying God's character, proclaiming his character back to him, compels God to act on your behalf in accordance with who he is. Now, this seems very bold, and it is. But God wants us to pray this way. And we see example again and again in Scripture of this. I think of a couple here. I think of Daniel and Daniel 9, who upon reading in the scroll of Jeremiah of the 70 years of captivity and realizing that these 70 years were almost complete, he prays for God to act based on his promise and his character of keeping promises. After a lengthy confession of Israel's sin in Daniel's prayer and how they deserve the captivity, Daniel concludes, O oh Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. In other words, your character is besmirched when Jerusalem lies desolate. Save your character. Act on your behalf. Your character is a God who saves. Save us. Save your name. Make your name glorious. I think also Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20, that same prayer we looked at back in Psalm 46 last time I was in the pulpit, um, 2 Chronicles 20, verses 6 through 12, little gap in the middle here, says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? 
You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Verse 11 now, Behold, our enemies reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Understanding it was God's character for them to have the land and dwell in it, Jehoshaphat prays that God would act in accordance with that and spare them and rescue them and keep them in their land. One more, I think, also of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, depending on how you want to say it, under attack and duress from the Chaldeans, and he appeals to God's character in Habakkuk 1, 12 through 13. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, God, you are holy and righteous. Do something about this evil situation. It is in your character, Lord, to act in this evil situation. In each of these trying times, the men of God appeal to the character of God to bring about the will of God. You see, it's God's character that is the soil that makes our prayers effective. We um, planted a garden in our backyard earlier this week. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we planted a garden in our backyard, and it was it was fun. We actually had a, a big circle in our backyard from where the previous owners had removed a, uh, a pool. <laughs> so we had this perfect circle, and we've been wanting to turn it into a, into a uh, garden for a while. And we finally did it this past week. But the, the dirt there is so full of rocks, and it was okay soil, but it, it needed it needed some compost. So we, we got a, a, a yard of compost and, and mixed it all in and made the soil nice and rich. If we were to plant seeds in unprepared soil, we would not yield a good crop. It's the rich soil that will lead to success in gardening. Likewise, it's the rich and full character of God that promises success in our prayers. It's his eternal character that causes seeds of faith, sown by petitions and tears, watered by tears, to sprout into robustly answered prayers. That's the character of God. It's what leads us to prayer. Because we know who he is, we can trust in him to consider, to hear, and to answer. Now that's explained. Entering into verses 4 through 6 reveals some elements of God's character that many people either reject or ignore. The virtue of God-honoring prayer is the same. Proclaim his character back to him. But the content of that character proclaimed can be tailor-fit to each situation. And in this situation, we know David is being attacked. He's got enemies who are after him, who slander him, who hate him, who want to see him dead. And so he tailor-fits his prayer of proclaiming God's character back to him. Look at verse 4. It states, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. Evil may not dwell with you. This is the key principle here, that you are a God who does not delight in wickedness. As we read earlier in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. This is who God is. This is 
he cannot, he cannot handle any wickedness whatsoever. Now it says here uh, in the second line, evil may not dwell with you. We could just as well eat that, read it that as an evil man may not dwell with you. An evil man may not dwell with you. And that word dwell, it means to, to sojourn, to temporarily dwell, to pitch a tent for a couple of days, not to stay long. It's not somebody who lives permanently, but somebody who's just passing through. And the idea here is that God can't tolerate evil or an evil person for even a split second. No evil person can enter heaven, even for a few minutes, even for just a hair of a second. Nobody who is evil can come before God. Nobody can come before him. God hates evil utterly. He is so righteous, so set apart. Evil cannot be in his presence, not even for a moment. Well, verse 4 here states the principle. Verse 5 gets the nitty-gritty as David rattles off four of God's responses to wicked people. Look at verse 5. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. There can only be one at the top of a pyramid. There can only be one king of the hill, only one Caesar in the praetorium, only one president in the Oval Office. And the arrogant in verse 5 thinks that he's on top, but God says, no, you're not. I'm on top. You cannot stand in my presence. The boastful, arrogant person is cast aside. God's supreme nature, supreme being, and supreme character will not share the throne with anyone. And at the end of verse 5, we, we read the shocking statement. You hate all who do iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. Wait, I, I thought God hates the sin but loves the sinner. John 3.16, right? God loves everyone. Well, yes and no. <laughs> we look at love in two ways. There's the general love of God and that he loves all people. And then there's the special love he has for his children. Just as I, I love all people generally, God willing, as the spirit moves me, but I love my wife and my kid with a special love. I have a special love for them. It's the same idea. God has a special love for his children and a general love for the people at large. Now, the, the primary meaning behind the word hate here is to reject. So we've got this God with a general love, but he still hates the sinner, those who do iniquity. The, the primary meaning behind hate is to reject. Think of the phrase, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's like Jacob I accepted, but Esau I rejected. God rejects the sinner. God's love, though, however, as John 3.16 teaches, has made a way for any sinner to be rescued from God's hate. God's love has opened the door of escape from the fires of hell that are licking at every soul of sinful man. God hates sin but loves the sinner such that he has provided salvation for any sinner who repents and believes. But to those who do not, God's righteous hatred of evil leads to their ultimate rejection and eternal damnation in hell. David understood that, and we need to as well. We need to understand that as well. Well, verse 6 gives two more of God's responses to wicked men. It reads, verse 6, You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, as a kid, like all kids, I sang little ditties as I grew up. They're you know, nursery rhymes, bedtime songs, they repeat through your mind. They just come out the weirdest times. Well, one that I learned from a friend that has stuck with me like so many is, is a, 
is one that where it basically parrots Revelation 21.8. <laughs> and as, I, as naive kids, we never took it seriously. We just thought it was funny to sing. And it went something like this. It was, it was Revelation, Revelation 21.8, 21.8. Liars go to hell, liars go to hell. Burn, 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 burn. And the, uh, the more vindictive and evil you said the word burn, 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 the better. Well, despite the absurdity of putting that verse into a lighthearted ditty, it never did leave me. And that's exactly what verse 6 is saying at the beginning. It's essentially what Revelation 21.8 says, all liars go to hell. But verse 6 says, you destroy those who speak lies. Those whose lives are demarcated by lying and conniving will ultimately be destroyed in hell. They might fool people on earth with their lies, they'll never fool God. Every lie is seen by him. And they will pay for it. Well, finally, David leverages his last cringeworthy truth about God's righteous attitude towards evil when he says, end of verse 6, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. He abhors them. He loathes them. He can't stand them at all. This is the, the person who is bloodthirsty, thirsty for blood, or they're deceitful. They, they like to hide. They like to trick, just like the Gibeonites tricked Joshua when they came with old bread and old sandals on their feet. They, or just like Saul, when he came to the witch of Endor, deceived her by not saying that he was the king, but dressed differently. People who deceive to kill have blood on their hands. And God hates, God loathes these people. Ultimately, what David is expressing here in these verses about God's character is the righteous and holiness of God. And because God is righteous, he cannot look on sin. God cannot look on evil. He cannot take part in it. In fact, he hates it with the utmost hatred. His righteousness demands that. But verse 7 turns a sharp corner here. But it does continue the theme of proclaiming God's character. Look at verse 7. But I, <laughs> strong contrast, David says, I am not in that group. But I, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David, just like you and I, needs an answer to his sin. Judgment is coming upon every human being because all have sinned. And where did David find salvation? Was it in his works, in keeping the law, in what he did? No, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love, will come to you. He finds his freedom, his rescue, in the loving kindness of God. That's where his hope is, not on what he does, but in who God is and what God has done. He went to the house of God. Again, the temple's not been built yet, so this is going to be the tabernacle where the ark was kept. He went to the house, to, he prayed to the holy temple, because that is where his blood was atoned for, by the blood of goats and bulls, Temporary covering, but that's where it happened, at the temple. And so he went there and prayed to God, or he turned there towards the temple to pray and to look to God for salvation, for atonement, for rescue for his sins. Friends, we don't look to the temple anymore. We look to the cross of Christ, where full atonement has been made once and for all, free and clear. Christ died for our sins while we were yet sinners to bring us back to God. He rescued us. And so we don't look to the temple as David did. That was right for him to do. We look to the cross, friend. We turn to the cross of Christ to be forgiven and released for our, from our sins. It is the only way that we can come before God. 
It is the only way that we are not included in verses 4, 5, and 6 with the wicked, hated by God, loathed by God, sentenced to hell. Through the loving kindness of God in his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. That is the only way we come to him. David comes with humility. We must come with nothing in our hands to bring. He comes with humility. He says, I bow before you. He comes with fear, reverence, you could say. David is humble as he approaches this wonderful king. He comes before him. So what is application for us from this, this, this section? Friends, God is righteous. He will not allow sin to go unpunished. He will not let you into his presence if you are living in your sin, if you are still a sinner. The only way, the only way is through the blood, shed blood of Jesus Christ who died on that cross. We come by God's grace and love shown through Jesus. That's free for everyone. Anyone can come to the loving arms of God if you would just believe that he died for you and rose from the dead, conquering death. If you would believe and turn from your sin, you can be a child of God. You can have the loving kindness of God poured out onto you and set free from the punishment of sin. But you must come humbly, undeserving. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You come humbly and undeserving, bowing before the Lord in fear of him, the sovereign, righteous God. If you come asking for mercy, he'll give it. He never withholds mercy to any who asks with the right heart. So first with our lives, then with our prayers, we need to live by faith in our sovereign, righteous, and good God. That's a key virtue. Petition the king, proclaim his character to him, especially in troubled times, proclaim his character right back to him. That brings us to our third virtue. Plead your case. Plead your case, verses 8 to 12. And unfortunately, this is where most prayers begin. Most of us, when we get on our knees or sit on our couches, we go right to what we need. Sometimes time limits us, and that's fine. I'm not saying you can't ever do that. But David waits all the way to here to present his case. He gives us a model to wait, to, to petition God, to proclaim his character back to him. And then he finally asks. What does he ask? Look at verse 8. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. He could not have picked a better place to start. Recognizing his own sin and his own failures, he asked God to do heart surgery on him first before operating on the hearts of others. He asked God to lead him, to guide him in righteousness. This is the same word, this word lead, is the same word used in Psalm 23.3, speaking of God as the good shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's not asking for God to make David's own way straight and easy. David's not asking for an easy life. But no, look at what he says in the second part of this verse. He says, make your way straight before me. Don't make my way straight. Make your way straight before me. What's he asking here? He's asking that God would make the right way straight and clear. It's a request for direction. He, he, he asks that he would be free from hindrances and temptations as he pursues what God wants for him. He's asking that the right way, the right decisions and the right actions that would honor God would be made plain and obvious, and he'd be able to walk in them. How do we all need this in troubled times? Troubled times give, bring to us very difficult decisions sometimes. They don't, we don't know what is right or wrong sometimes. We need great wisdom from God. And God says, whoever asks for wisdom, I will give it, James 1. Now, in these troubling days of the coronavirus, we don't always know what is right. Some, you know, should we listen to our governor in all things? Should we uh, 
go ahead and reopen. Like we don't like it's maybe scripture is really clear on some of these things. Some of them are not. And so we need to come before God and ask God, make your way straight before us. Make your way straight on to know what we should do. And I'm just going to ask you, friends, pray for your elders. Pray for us as we make decisions on behalf of this church, what to do and how to go forward, that God would give us wisdom, that God would make our way straight, rather that he would make his way straight, that it would be obvious and clear what direction we go as a church and what we do as a church. We should pray the same for each other as we face our various challenges and, and decisions during this troubled time. Well, David is praying this prayer like we would because of his current situation. And it's his enemies that are plotting against him, as verse 8 said there in the middle. I'm asking this because of my enemies. Well, verse 9 then gives a description of those enemies, one of the most blatant and, and harsh descriptions of, of an enemy you could you can think. And uh, the Apostle Paul actually takes this passage and includes it in his explanation <clears throat> of the sinfulness of all mankind. Excuse me. <coughs> And the sinfulness of all mankind. Paul takes this verse and applies it to every person on earth. This is a spirit-breathed, accurate description of not just David's enemies, but of all God's enemies. That is, of all people by nature. Friend, if you are without Jesus Christ, this verse, verse 9, is describing you. You are an enemy of God. Now, these enemies are described in a fourfold staccato of evil. One description heaped upon another. It starts off, <clears throat> there is no truth in their mouth. <coughs> Pardon me. There is no truth in their mouth. That means they, they don't speak true anything. And we already talked about how liars go to hell. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction, he continues. That inmost self is their stomach in Hebrew, literally, their inner midst, and it's often translated in English as, as the heart. It's the seat of the desires. What sinner desires most is destructive in nature. They desire destruction. They don't know that they desire destruction usually, but that's what they desire. That's what's inside them. He says their throat is an open grave. Their what a picture. An open grave with all those toxic smells and nastiness. That's their throat, and it's open. Like all these things are coming out. What's in the heart just comes right out. It comes right out and affects other people, leading them into the grave. And as it passes by, it comes out their tongue, the tongue that flatters. It's smooth. It's tricking. It's deceptive. It makes you feel good, but really it's, they're lying to you as they go. This is all humanity apart from faith in God. And David was experiencing this wickedness and attacks from his enemies. And so in verse 10, he prays for God to do something about it. Look at verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Notice how the verse ends. For they have rebelled against you. These people are ultimately God's enemies. That's why David can pray in this way. This is, in one sense, a generic prayer. You notice he's not praying against Absalom his son, or against Ahithophel, his trusted counselor, or even against that wicked man Shimei who cursed David and threw stones at him. He's not praying against any personal enemies, but against God's enemies. That's what truly matters. And I think we can learn from his example when we pray. We are not to pray specifically for somebody that we are having issues with or trouble with. We're to pray against the enemies of God. 
If that person we're dealing with is an enemy of God, God will deal with them accordingly. But we don't get specific when we pray against people. We pray generically against sin and wickedness and wicked people that God would stymie them, that he would stop them. David prays three things against these enemies of God. He says, first, make them bear their guilt. David asks for them that their guiltiness would receive its consequences. And friends, it's not wrong for David or us to pray like this. If we love God's righteousness and love what God loves, we should hate unrighteousness and hate what he hates. While we pray for God to be gracious and to save souls of individuals, we can and should generically pray for God to bring judgment on all acts of evil and all persons who act evilly. David asks for God to do that. He says to, to, bring, about their, their, to, to bring about their guilt back on their own head. He also gives two more. He says, let them fall by their own counsels or by their own devices. Let their own sin ensnare them. Let them fall. Let them be trapped by their own way. Let it fall back on their head as they plan to do to others, he's basically saying. The other one then is, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. That word cast them out means to banish, to thrust aside. David's saying, because of their sin, cast them out. Remove them from their place of influence. Remove them from their friends and their people who prop them up. Let their sin backfire on them and let them be removed from their place of influence and lose their power for evil. Let them lose their influence. Now, I want to point out this does line up with New Testament teaching. Whereas Jesus instructs us to pray for our enemies, Matthew 5.44, he also teaches us to pray that we not be led into temptation, but delivered from the evil one. So we pray good things specifically for those who oppose us, asking God for their welfare, that they might make wise decisions, and that especially that we pray for their salvation. But we also are to pray generically that God would remove evildoers from influence and that he would cause their own wickedness to fall back upon them. Does, does such praying still grate your ears? Does this kind of sound like fingernails on a chalkboard? Well, think then, just think of a judge sentencing a convicted murderer, however severe that sentence might be. Do we feel that a murderer's condemnation is unjust? Do we wish the judge had just let that murderer go free? No, especially if you're not maybe the spouse of the one murdered, you would never think that. No, the murderer receives the due penalty for his sin. We expect that. And we should expect this for all the wicked. And we may even pray for it as certain as it certainly aligns with God's will. Alan Ross sums it up well when he writes of these verses in Psalm 5. He says, this prayer is well within the will of God. For the psalmist was not asking God to do something that he was not going to do anyway eventually. David's prayer was that the judgment planned for the wicked begins sooner than later. Similarly, in the New Testament, when believers pray for deliverance from wicked attacks, it may be brought about by God's removal of the wicked. We could be delivered by God removing the wicked. And so like David, in times of trouble, we can and should pray in accordance with God's holiness and his righteousness. We should pray in that way. And we can also pray in accordance with God's goodness. And that's what we see in verses 11 and 12. David brings his prayer to a resounding conclusion based on the goodness of God. Having prayed first for a right heart and for God's righteous justice on wicked people, he now asks for God's loving kindness to overflow upon his people. Look at verse 11. 
verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. Verse 11 says they take refuge in God. They are those who love your name. This is the character of the people David's praying for, that they take refuge in God. Or you can translate that, put their trust in God. As somebody who goes to him for shelter, for refuge, for trust, for help. That's the people he's praying for. Those who love your name. Those are two perfect descriptions of believers who put their trust in God and who love his name. Name is representative of all God's character. Who love God's character. Who love all that God is. It's for these believers that David prays. And he prays for their rejoicing. He prays that they would be rejoicing, that they would have cause to sing for joy forever and for their protection. He also prays. I once heard of a senior woman of the faith who made this statement. She said, there are only three things that can happen to you as a believer in Christ, and they're all good. She then explained, first, God can bless you in your life, spiritually, materially, with good health, you name it. Or second, God can give you trials and pains. And while this hurts, it is also good as God uses it to purify us, draw us closer to him as he's promised, and as he's promised he'll work out everything for good. And thirdly, we can die, and then we go to heaven. Those are the only three things that can really happen to a believer, and they're all for our good. And so every option, everything we can face in life, everything that we can face can rightly be viewed by us as good from God and should bring us to rejoice. It can bring us to rejoicing. God blesses the righteous with good, however he sees best to do that. And so David prays that we would, as we recognize that, that we would rejoice, that we would sing forever for joy. We have every reason to sing forever for joy if we just stop and think about all that God's done for us and how everything is for our good. David also prays for protection for God's people, and so should we. It's not wrong to pray for protection, not at all. He prays for that in verse 11. And this spreading of protection spoken of in this verse is like a, a mother hen covers her chicks with her wings so they can no longer see the danger. And that's what God does. He spreads his wings over our hearts and minds so that we no longer see the danger, but only God. We only see God. And as we look at God, instead of the grief, we exult in him. We praise him. God protects us so that we can praise him. That is the aim of his protection. That is the aim of his acting in our life, to make us more like his son, that we might bring him glory, give him glory. Well, verse 12 concludes this wonderful prayer in this psalm with more proclamations of God's character. Let's finish our time here. Look at verse 12. It says, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. It is God's plan to bless the righteous. He covers his children with favor, as with his shields. Shields in ancient time, they weren't these little round things that you might see someone using. They're, they were huge body shields. You could like literally stand up and almost be completely protected behind one. And they were curves that you were almost inside it. God protects us like a mother hen, and he covers us, covers us with his favor like an ancient man-sized shield. There's no chance for anything outside of God's will to ever reach us. There's no chance whatsoever. And it's in this vein that David asks God that those who have put their trust in him will rejoice and sing in all circumstances. Friend, in any situation, in any troubled time, you and I can have peace. You and I can rejoice in God. 
Well, I know that uh, you're familiar with Martin Luther and the Diet of Worms that occurred in the early days of the Protestant Reformation, in which he was called to Augsburg to come and be examined by the Catholic authorities and recount his teaching. His friends urged him not to go, as many who went to these such summons were instead executed, burned at the stake for heresy. However, Luther's prince, the elector of Saxony, urged him to go and guaranteed his safety. And so Luther went. When Luther arrived there, one of the examining cardinals came to Luther beforehand and mocked him. Mocked him, and he, he asked Luther, Where do you expect to find shelter if your patron, the elector of Saxony, should ever desert you? Where are you going to find protection? Luther replied then that he would be safe under the shield of heaven. That's what David's talking about. That's where you and I stand. We are safe under the shield of heaven. <clears throat> now, history records for us that Luther was not forced to recant, nor was he burned at the stake at this meeting, but he would go on for many more years of fruitful ministry for the cause of Christ. The shield of God's favor is upon those who know and follow him. Fred, do you know this piece? Do you have the shield over you now? Can you rejoice in any and <clears throat> all circumstances, even in the most troubling times? Come to Christ. Come to him. He can set you free. He can give you peace. If you have come to Christ, <clears throat> then you should be eager to pray like this. You can both live and pray <clears throat> in this way by faith, and you could receive the joy and peace that only he can give in any and every circumstance, even in troubled times, even in troubled times. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you that you are a good and righteous God. We ask for you to hear us as David did, that you would hear our prayers, hear this prayer, God. You are a good God, a righteous God, who listens to your people. God, you hate wickedness. You hate evil. I pray that it would be removed from our midst. I pray that as a church, we would be holy people, that we would pray as, as David did, that you would make your way straight before us, that you would cause us to be righteous. Remove evil from within our own hearts, God, that we might be fully pleasing to you. We know we're under no condemnation, but we want to please you, Father. We pray that you would remove evil in the world, that you would bring an end to the reign of wickedness, that you would bring an end to it, God, and reestablish righteousness in this earth and bring back your son. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray even in this season, God, for evil powers that are at work, that you would thwart the devil, that you would thwart evil, that you would stop wickedness in its tracks and let peace and righteousness and truth reign in this difficult season we're in. I just lift these things up to you, God. This is who you are. This is what you do. God, I pray for our hearts and souls. If someone is listening to us right now that does not know you, God, and they're on their way to hell, they're on their way to forever rejection from you, cast off from you, hated by you, God, I pray that they would see your love in Christ and turn to the cross. May they run to the cross of Christ and be set free from sin's penalty. May they forsake this world and their sinful ways and cast all upon the Savior. And God, in your great love, you will rescue them and, and call them your son, your daughter. 
If there's anything that need to do that, God, I pray that you would work in their heart and move them to do that right now. God, work in each of us. Conform us to your image. Make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Make us prayers like Jesus, like David, that we come to you faithfully, regularly, to beseech your throne with. We ask these things in the precious name, that so precious name, the name above all names, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.